one of the things that they continue to mention is that in, what drives them in their pursuit of endurance is not so much endurance as it is they want to be good at whatever they're committing themselves to do. And it's they, they really want to improve, they, whatever it is. And they're willing to take to count the cost and put in the effort um, and the energy in order to be good at something. And as they do that, that's what brings about endurance. And as I was thinking about that today, even in light of Revelation, of course, Revelation has a major theme on the perseverance of the saints, on endurance. But I was thinking of uh, really just the, the, the simple fact that the reason we've gathered here is because we want to endure. We want to be good Christians. We want to be the best Christians we could possibly be. We're not here because we take our faith seriously. I mean, there really isn't any greater thing we could be devoted to. So I'm listening to people who are devoting themselves to bow hunting or to running or to cycling or whatever it is, which are okay things, but there's no eternal value. And yet what we're called to, and even the rewards that we're promised as we seek to honor Christ with our life, is uh, there's no comparison. And so I just want to encourage you as you're here that you are investing in that endurance, that, it, that, that this will bring about fruit in your life, that, that it, it is purposeful, it is helpful. And um, one of the things these, other guys, these guys are saying in their books is, you know, you can't just dive right in and run a mile or run a marathon. You can maybe run a mile, but maybe not at the top speed that you want to. It's going to take time. But as you do the little things, over time, those little things begin to build up, and that's what gives you strength. So what does that have to do with um, Revelation? Well, it has to do with the fact that the, one of the major themes is our need to persevere in the faith. But also, uh, what we're going to look at tonight is really theology. How do we interpret Revelation? And um, a person could ask, well, why should I... You know, why should I care about eschatology? Why should I care about the, these theological subjects that people disagree on so much? Well, it's really for this very reason. The more we understand the Bible, the, 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 more we're, the better we're going to be able to endure, the better Christians we're going to be, the, the, the less likely we're going to be deceived or led astray or um, be tripped up in our thinking. And we can understand others and therefore be more patient with others as we help others to grow as well. And so um, it, it's impactful even in our spiritual growth. So we, so far we've looked at the what of Revelation, what's it about, um, who wrote it, where it was uh, written from, who it was written to. Um, now we're looking at the how. And the first question, of course, is how should we interpret Revelation? Well, I think it's important to just establish this principle that everything that God has written in his word, it's, he's written for our instruction. It's all profitable. If it wasn't profitable, it wouldn't be there. We know that because of 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is profitable. It's breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Right? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything in scripture is going to help us grow in Christ-likeness if we rightly understand it and rightly apply it. Um, also, uh, first Romans 5, sorry, 15, 14 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance 
And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what was written previously, referring to the Old Testament scriptures, was written for our instruction. It has purpose and it will give us uh, encouragement so that we might have hope. None of it is empty. So um, I think our eschatological position uh, does matter to God. And so I don't, um, I don't ag- agree with the people who say, well, because there's so much division in eschatology and because it's so confusing, we shouldn't study it. It's just not worth the time. Let's just focus on you know, the solas of Scripture, you know, Reformed theology, and eschatology. You know, we c- it's more of like a fad sort of thing to study for fun rather than something that really is going to seriously impact our life. I disagree with that sort of thinking. I think God does want us to have a right understanding of theology. Of, sorry, end times eschatology. That aspect of theology. But I also don't think we should be militant about our position either. Uh, the reason people differ on their interpretations of eschatology, for the most part, it's because they're trying to rightly handle the word of God. They're not trying to twist it. They're not trying to be confusing. It, it's confusing because they're trying to take a confusing topic and make sense of it. It's not, the, it's not like false teachers who take a simple topic and try to make it confusing. Eschatology is hard to understand, largely because it's dealing with things that haven't happened yet. And, so, and it's also highly symbolic. Um, it's, it's not in just one section of scripture, but it's spread throughout the scripture. And so, um, some people will just focus maybe on one passage, but you have to read scripture in light of other scripture. And that just takes a lot of work and a lot of reading and thinking and weighing of these, um, texts together. So I think most people's differences in their eschatological viewpoint, by the way, eschatology refers to the study of end times, of last things. Eschatos means last. So I think the reason people differ on their understanding of end times, again, is because they're trying to make sense of a confusing topic, and their differences are rational and understandable. And they're largely just the result of their hermeneutics that they were trained in. That's their methodology for interpreting Scripture. And that's why, actually, uh, uh, we have a position uh, in our... um, um, church's doctrinal statement on eschatology, but it's pretty broad. And it's broad purposefully because people who may disagree on how to interpret Revelation um, don't disagree as far as the authority of the Bible or the authenticity of it or that there is a singular meaning to it. They just differ in how they should interpret uh, specific passages, specifically those that deal with, uh, that are highly symbolic. So um, part of our understanding is that as people grow in their understanding of Scripture, they're going to grow in their understanding of theology and their convictions are going to deepen. We don't assume that a person just is going to walk through the door as a baby believer or as a person even who's gone to another church for many years and they're immediately just going to agree with us. It takes time to build theology. And to understand why we believe what we believe and to understand differing positions and why we agree with them or don't agree with them. And so um, I actually don't assume any of you believes exactly what I believe, including Ben. Um, I don't assume that. 
Um, I actually assume you might disagree with me, um, but that doesn't mean I'm any the less convinced of my view. In fact, I'm, I'm very convinced of my eschatological convictions. But even though I'm convinced of it, that doesn't mean I'm not open to being corrected or to being challenged or being questioned. Um, because I think I can err, and I certainly have in the past, certainly with eschatology. But the reason I have my convictions is because I've studied this for years. And not only in seminary and in my doctoral studies, but this is something that I've studied since I, was, <laughs> since I became a believer, actually, uh, when I was 10 years old. And it's something I've put a lot of time into, and I've varied in my positions, but I feel like I've finally come to a place where the positions I hold, I don't think there's a lot of weakness in their arguments. Um, whereas other positions, I see there, there's just some blaring challenges, I think, to um, where they land. But I still want to be fair with those and, and, and recognize I might misunderstand those positions still or misunderstand something I'm studying. And so I, this brings up just, uh, I think, as we're talking about how we should interpret Revelation, just some dangers uh, that we should be aware of when it comes to uh, weighing theological positions, dangers in our theological development. Um, the first is we don't want to be reactionary. By far, most people come to their eschatological convictions um, because they're coming out of a church that they disagreed with. Often it's the church they grew up with and they see the problems in that church. And so they say, I don't want to have anything to do with what that church thought. So I'm going to embrace the other side. And I've seen that almost as I've engaged with people. For the most part, most people don't believe what they grew up believing when it comes to eschatology. And so um, that may be because of for good reasons. But we don't want to just believe something because we don't like what what a previous church had taught or a previous pastor. Um, we want to be drawn to something because we are convinced that it's true, not just because it's different than something else. Secondly, we don't want to be afraid of differences. Um, the goal, again, of studying Scripture is to understand the Bible rightly. It's not to get everybody to, to agree with our position. right? So if, if we all disagree in our theological positions, um, that's okay as long as we're willing to wrestle with why we disagree. But it's not because we're fighting against each other. It's really we're fighting to understand the truth. And we should be helping one another in that process. So it's okay, it's okay if we disagree with one another. That doesn't mean one of us is a heretic. If the reasons we disagree are, are rooted in Scripture. And so we need to be, just exercise patience and charity with one another as we talk about these things. Um, and we need to admit our weaknesses of our interpretation. While at the same time not abandoning the things that we're convinced of. Because there will be weaknesses, especially in things with eschatology, because, again, they haven't happened yet. Thirdly, we need to avoid bandwagon theology. And what I mean by that is kind of the opposite of the first one, is we don't want to just believe something because that's what our pastor believes, or what our parent believes, or what our favorite theologian believes. We want to believe something because we've seen it in the Bible, and we're convinced that that's what the Bible is saying. Um... And so we need to weigh doctrines through Scripture, not, uh, not weighing them because of the positions of other pastors. Right? So many people will come to me and say, well, don't you know what so-and-so believes about this? And it's like, that may be interesting, but that's not necessarily going to convince me. It may, be, may, may make me go, well, I'd like to look at their arguments. 
But what I care about is what does the Bible say? Not what does R.C. Sproul say or John MacArthur say or all the Puritans. Um, I, I, I care about those things because I want to know if I disagree with them, why we disagree. But that they are not what's going to determine my convictions. The word of God is. And that should be the truth for all of us. Um, now, the reason we do uh, love to, to follow the, the leadership of these well-known pastors and theologians is because it's very easy to feel comfortable, right? If, if, if we're going to, if we're going to be wrong on something, let us, let's be wrong at least with the Puritans. If we're going to, if the ship's going to go down, let's go down with the right people. And that's often how people approach something. They don't understand it. So they'll just say, I believe what they believe, even though they don't really understand what another person believes. Um, But the problem is, what if they're wrong? Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, do you know that the, well, actually the the disciples asked him a question first. They they asked him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So the Pharisees didn't agree with what Jesus was teaching. And And Jesus answered them, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, these, he's talking about the Pharisees. These are esteemed theologians. And Jesus is saying they're wrong. I don't care if they disagree with me. What I care about is the truth. And that, that, that should be the truth. Same with us. Is we want to believe things because that's what the Bible teaches, not just because that's what the famous teachers teach. And so we need to really weigh our convictions with Scripture. Fourthly, um, utilize Occam's razor. What Occam's razor essentially is, is uh, he was a medieval theologian, and he, one of his most famous statements is essentially, um, you can know that the best idea is the one that's the simplest. Right? You can tell the truth of an idea based upon how uncomplicated it is. The more... A, uh, an idea gets convoluted or complicated or there's all these different exceptions and that's an indication that something's not right someplace. So look for simplicity in theology. Um, That's often what's going to um, uh, indicate that you're on the right track. Um, It's not a, it's not a theological rule, but it's a, it's a good principle to follow in theology as well as life. Explanations get, Overly complicated or convoluted, they're usually off track someplace. All right, so that's kind of some introductory statements on this. Let's, let's look at how we should interpret Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And this is, a, this is a helpful statement. John says, chapter 1, verse 19, um, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So this is what he's ordered to do. And you'll see that he's writing, he's going to be writing down in Revelation, in this book, those things that are, present tense, and those that are to take place after this. Right? Future tense. Right? So there's going to be some present tense stuff and some future tense stuff. And almost all theologians agree that the most simple way to divide up the, the, the book of Revelation is the first section, which is the letter to the seven churches. There's seven letters, uh, chapters one through four, or one through three, sorry. And then five through 22 deal with the future. And it's in the second part that most people disagree 
um, what it's referring to. Again, because it's, I believe, referring to some, some things that have, events that are going to happen in the future. And so there's four traditional ways of understanding Revelation 4 through 22. The first is the historicist uh, position. As the word implies, this view looks at Revelation as kind of a survey of human history. And so it originated with Joachim of Flores. He was a theologian in uh, the medieval uh, era in 1202 is when he died. And he was a monk who claimed to have received a special vision that revealed to him God's plan for the ages. And it was his position that was really embraced by the Roman Catholic Church and was that therefore then was embraced by the Reformed theologians like Luther and Calvin. So it's his kind of grid that the reformers use in their writings about the um, about revelation in their commentaries. Ironically, I think it's ironic because despite its Catholic origins, these reformers actually believed that the Antichrist in Babylon were describing uh, the papacy and Rome because of this historic, historic, historicist interpretation of Revelation. So that's historicism. So this is kind of the Reformed view of how to interpret Revelation and the Roman Catholic view. Uh, the idealist view is the second one. And this sees Revelation basically as poetic and symbolic and spiritual in nature. And it, these theologians would say it doesn't really describe any particular event it's just using imagery to describe what the christian life is like it's going to be hard there's going to be persecution and yet we need to endure but it's using imagery to convey these theological principles is the point all right the third is the preterist view and those who are hold to the to preterism view that uh the events in revelation uh, describe the events in the first century, uh, first century Israel, um, up until really the fall of Jerusalem uh, in 70 A.D. It was written during; they believe it was written during the reign of Nero, and it, it, it all of it's limited to the first century. So, for example, they identify the beast of chapter 13 as imperial Rome. Um, and so they actually don't recognize the last few chapters as even having uh, a future relevance. So that what we would describe as the uh, new heavens and new earth and the eternal state, uh, they would see as, again, just symbolic of the first century um, Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And preterism was the view held by uh, R.C. Sproul and a number of other contemporary scholars Many amillennialists hold to uh, preterism or at least halfway preterism. Uh, halfway preterism is similar. It says that a lot of these events that, uh, that are being described in Revelation did take place um, in, uh, before AD 70 uh, in describing the fall of Jerusalem under Rome. But many of them also look to forward to their other descriptions that are looking forward to uh, a future Fulfillment, And so they would see, again, those last chapters of Revelation having a future fulfillment uh, in the eternal state. All right. The other position, major position, is the futurist position. And this is the view that I hold. And it believes that with the exception of chapters 1 through 3, all of the visions of Revelation refer to the future. And um, 
it will it refers to a time uh, that will lead up to the second advent of Christ and the end of the age. Uh, example of how we would interpret this is the beast in chapters 13 through 17 is understood to be the future Antichrist who will come and be eventually defeated by Christ when he comes to judge the world and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Uh, this was actually the position taken by the early church fathers. So the, the, the earliest theologians we have record of, such as Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Justin Martyr, Victorinus, uh, this was the position they held. Uh, and so futurists could also be divided, similar to the preterists, into kind of two camps. Um, one camp is the dispensationalists, and the second camp is the classic premillennialists. Classic premillennialists referring to the position held by those early theologians that I just mentioned. Dispensationalism was a, a theological um, uh, a grid, I'll, I'll just say, that developed a couple hundred years ago. Uh, largely through the writings of, uh, I believe it was Dabney, and then kind of popularized by um, Ryrie, Charles Ryrie. Um, and so, uh, dispense, the basic, uh, how would I say the difference between dispensationalism and, um, the difference between dispensationalism and classical premillennialists is, is primarily this. Um, classic premillennialists um, would say that much of the symbolism needs to be interpreted symbolically, um, but much of Revelation also needs to be interpreted literally. And you have to kind of look at the passage to determine is this, is this being symbolic or is it being literal? Whereas traditional dispensationalists would say, no, we need to interpret it all literally. And so um, that develops some challenges, I believe. So I, I'm a classic premillennialist. Um, and probably the biggest way this will get manifested in my interpretation of Revelation has to do with my understanding of when the rapture takes place. So um, classic dispensationalists would say uh, the rapture was going to take place um, right before the tr- seven-year tribulation, and then uh, the church is raptured up, is taken up to be with Christ in heaven, uh, and during the period when the, the, all the judgment is poured out and then when Christ returns, uh, he will return. And it's at that point that everybody will receive resurrected bodies. Whereas I think the best way to understand passages that are interpreted as referring to the rapture um, are actually referring to the resurrection. There's not two different gatherings of believers. There's just one that happens at the end of um, when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. So I, I do believe that the book should be interpreted chronologically. And so that brings up how the book should be structured. Ben, if you look uh, at the bench in front of you, that I have some, uh, just an outline of the book of Revelation, if you don't mind passing those out. Um, I have a simple outline there on the screen uh, that you can look at, um, and then a more developed one that's being passed out. Um, I'll say this. The book begins in time past as we looked at Revelation 1.19, with a vision that is revealed to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And then Christ presents personal letters to be given to seven churches in Asia Minor. Following these letters to the seven churches, uh, there is a a very captivating uh, vision of the throne room in heaven. Uh, 
And it's divided into two sections. Chapter 4 emphasizes the right for God to receive worship from all creation. And in chapter 5, the second part of the vision emphasizes the right of Christ to bring God's purposes to completion by opening the seals. And it's this act of opening the seals that triggers the pouring out of God's wrath that's going to take place through the rest of the book. And there are three primary stages to the pouring out of God's wrath. And those are the three kinds of judgments. So you have um, the trumpet, the seal, ju- seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then the, the bowl judgments. And it's this time period when these judgments are poured out that is called the tribulation. Um, it's also called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament or the day of God's vengeance. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, and Daniel 9, 27, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's all referring to that future time period when God's wrath would be poured out. And it's consistently described as a seven-year period, with things getting particularly tough halfway through. Um, I say it's consistently described as a seven-year period. I don't believe that's uh, symbolic of seven years, I think it's a literal seven-year period for this reason. Um, in Daniel 8:14, it's said to consist of 2,300 evenings and mornings. So very specific, evenings and mornings. All right, the second half is said to be 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Right, second half. That's Revelation 12:6. Also in Revelation 2 through 3, um, Antichrist is said to trample Jerusalem for 42 months. Again, three and a half years. It's the second part of the tribulation. So we have, we have it broken down into days. We have it broken down into months as well as into years. And it's during that time that the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. So again, specifying days. And it's not a round number. It's a very specific um, literal number, 1,260. I guess it is somewhat round, but um, it's not rounded up to 1,200. Also, Revelation 12:5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Same time period. So many different times when the, 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 it's, this time period is described in Scripture, it's given a time period, and that time period is consistent. And it's broken down into days and months and years, which would tell us most likely we should interpret it literally, and that's how I would interpret it. So I believe it's going to be seven a seven-year tribulation, beginning with the seven seals, and then the, the second half of the tribulation, taking up the trumpet and bold judgments. All right, so how does the timeline of Revelation fit with what's revealed in other eschatological texts? So if you keep that outline that I gave you, that been passed out, and then also turn your Bible to Matthew 24, um, I want to kind of walk you through what I believe is the timeline for the uh, for eschatology, for how God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. So Matthew 24 is when Jesus gives what's called the Olivet Discourse, and he explains what's going to happen in the end times. And so I want you to kind of line up what Jesus says here with the book of Revelation. And I be- I'm giving this to you because I think it will help you understand not only my position, how I'm interpreting Revelation, but I, I hope it'll help you understand uh, 
kind of a, a timeline as we're reading through it in the, the year ahead. All right, Matthew 24. Uh, notice especially verse 8. He, he calls it the, the, the beginning of the birth pangs. And this describes the difficulties that are going to be experienced by believers during the three and a half years of the tribulation, when things get really bad. The first three and a half years aren't necessarily rosy. Um, they're going to be difficult, but they're going to be especially difficult during the second half. All right, in this passage, Jesus explains that during this time period, there's going to be many false messiahs that rise up. This is in verses 4 through 5. There will also be wars and rumors of wars in verse 6 and 7. Also famines and earthquakes. But he specifies, again, in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So this isn't the real deal. These are just the beginning. These are just the contractions. And any person that's had a child can tell you there's a big difference between just the beginning contractions and those <laughs> during transition. Um, they get a lot more intense and a lot more difficult. And then the baby comes. And Jesus goes on to explain that during this time, believers are going to be martyred and hated by all nations. That many people are going to fall away from the faith and betray one another. Verse 10, false prophets will rise up. In verse 11, lawlessness will increase and the love of many will go cold. In verse 12, but the gospel will continue to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then the end will come. That's verse 14. So, this, this real intensive part that's just described constitutes the first three and a half years of the tribulation. All right, the, um, and this corresponds with what's described in Revelation chapters 6 and 7. All right, so we haven't even gotten to the really bad stuff yet. All of this is just the beginning of the birth pain. So it's not rosy. It's going to be difficult. We're going to be hated. There's going to be great tribulation. Although it's not yet the great tribulation. So, sorry for the confusing phraseology. The great tribulation, when you hear that term in, in theology, typically refers to the second half of the tribulation. So you have the tribulation seven years, the great tribulation being that three and a half years. And that's the great tribulation, the second three and a half years, is going to be marked by the Antichrist setting up an abomination of desolation in the temple. And then at that time, he's going to turn his wrath upon all Christians and Jews. And this is described in Revelation 11, Daniel 9, Matthew 24, and 2 Thessalonians 2. Which begs this question. Uh, what will this des abomination of desolation be? Well, this is actually described multiple times in Scripture. And it's most explicitly described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you want to look at that, just hold your finger in Matthew 24. I'll read it to you. It says, let... Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. That's referring to the resurrection. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the second half of the tribulation the second three and a half years will be marked when the Antichrist, whoever he is, takes his throne room in the temple of God and proclaims himself to actually be God. When that happens, the, the, that abomination in the temple that, that causes the temple to become desolate of any spiritual good, when that happens, 
things are going to get really intense. And that's what's described in the, the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bull judgments. The man of lawlessness is often referred to as the Antichrist. Um, Daniel prophesies that this act of Antichrist, um, he, he prophesies it in Daniel 9.27. This is what he says. He, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one, uh, one seven. That is, one set of seven years. It's probably the best way to understand it. And for half of that one set of seven, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So again, that's speaking to the second half of the tribulation. And uh, midway through the seven-year period is when he will expose his true colors, declare himself to be God, and seek to wipe out Jews and Christians. Uh, these events are probably most likely what's being described in Revelation 12. If you want to hold your finger in Matthew 24, flip to Revelation 12. I believe that's what's being described in these verses, beginning in verse, verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and a half a time. Right? Three and a half years. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So this is in Revelation chapter 4. Again, in the middle of these trumpet and, and bull judgments. So this suggests that the remnant of the Jews who are able to flee are going to be preserved someplace in the wilderness during this final three and a half years. And I believe that this is what Jesus is referring to in the Olivet Discourse when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, get out of town as quickly as you can because things are going to get really bad at that point. Um, in fact, this is what he says. I'll, I'll read it for you. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to, to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. All right, so this is describing again that second three and a half years of the great tribulation. And this is what Jesus describes in Matthew 24. For then, sorry, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So that's how bad it's going to be. If, it, if God did not put an end to it, everyone would have been wiped out. So it's going to be extremely intense, extremely difficult. And again, this is what I believe is described in chapters 8 through 18 with the trumpet and bold judgments. And then the end of the Great Tribulation comes uh, when Christ returns um, in uh, chapter 19. 
And that's when he gathers his elect from the four corners of the earth. And this is when he will return from heaven in all his glory and everybody's going to know it. And so you might recall in our study of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus, or after Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels rebuke the apostles because they're just standing there staring into heaven. And, they say, and he says this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is what's being described. Jesus is going to return in the same way that you saw him ascend. And so he's telling them, you will know the true Messiah because he's the one that's coming in the clouds. Not the, not the guy on earth that's proclaiming himself to be a Messiah. Because one of the concerns is many of the, the people are going to be led astray by false prophets, false messiahs. You can know the true Messiah because he's the one with the, with the sound of a trumpet who will be revealed and he'll be coming in the clouds. Right? So there, there should be no confusion on who the Messiah is uh, in the last days. So... He's not going to return, though, until after all these cataclysmic events take place. But when he does, everybody's going to know. So he's going to return after the tribulation. And it's then that he will resurrect all the saints and gather them to himself. Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 24. And then he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The same events described in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. When Christ returns, there's going to be a trumpet sound and that's when the resurrection happens. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. All right, then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17... For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. So you have, in all of those passages describing the return of Christ, there's a, there's a trumpet call, and then there's a resurrection. I believe it's all talking about the same event because of the trumpet in particular. And this is described more fully in Revelation 19. And we'll look at that in depth in weeks ahead. And it's at this point in Revelation 19 that Christ descends upon the earth and he establishes his kingdom where he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's the imagery that's used in Psalm 2.9. Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, Revelation 12, 5, and 19, 15. The, the description of a rod of iron means it's going to be with an absolute rule. He will, expe- he will expect obedience, and when there's disobedience, there's going to be punishment. And so that tells us that when Christ reigns upon the earth, there will still be disobedience. There will still be unbelievers who rebel against him, and he will punish them. And uh, the resurrected saints are said to rule with him and will act as judges over those nations along with him. This is alluded to in Revelation 2.27. And so this will take place for a thousand years. I believe that's it's a literal thousand years. It could be symbolic. I won't argue about that, but I do believe it's literal. 
And then Satan will then be released and destroyed along with death and Hades. And that's described in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And it's after this, that it's after Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, as well as death and Hades, that's when all of the unbelievers who have perished and have been buried, they then will be resurrected. So the first resurrection was what was experienced by believers in this second resurrection um, of unbelievers. They are going to undergo their final judgment and then they will be cast into hell. So there will be a secondary resurrection um, just for unbelievers when they receive their final judgment and then uh, eternal punishment. And then the story ends, kind of, or begins again, you could say, in chapters 21 through 24. And that's when the whole of creation will be restored to its uh, Edenic design and all of the cosmos. So so the galaxy, stars, everything, everywhere will be completely purified from sin. There will no longer be any sin at at any point in eternity future at that point on. And we will live eternally in uh, according to what we are designed in a sinless, deathless, essentially an eternal temple of worship for the Lord. And I don't think that means we're just going to be singing all the time. I think we'll be living and functioning Um, just as God has designed us even now, but with glorified bodies um, that that will never decay, that will never rot, um, and that that we'll always experience joy and intimacy and uh, delight in our relationship with God. And so that's where everything's heading, uh, is to that future point that's just alluded to briefly in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. Let me pray. Father, as we uh, dive into this book and the study of end times, I do pray that you would give us wisdom, that we would treat every, every element of your word carefully and with sobriety and with eagerness as we seek to understand what it is that you want us to understand. Clearly, you don't want us to understand every detail because you didn't write it in such a way that we would. But you did want us to understand many things many and have deep-rooted convictions. Lord, we know that end times is something we should be concerned with um, because it, it, it does relate to us. And in fact, it may be experienced, as we know, even in our lifetime. Lord, you know we do not. And you know what you intend by your word. And we pray that you would use your word to its intent in our life that we would be transformed and changed and, uh, and, and compelled to endure in life, in the present, or if necessary, through the great tribulation in the future. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.